I can't take any of this seriously unless I know who I'm talking to. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. TGIF, as they say. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, if our luck holds up. And, of course, we stay on the good side of bad boy, Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing well, kids. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I had a little Yogi Berra, not Berra, Yogi Bear going on. And how are you today, sir? Hey, Mr. Oh, Ranger, sir. That's right. And if it were Yogi Berra, if it were Yogi Berra, then how would that be? I, very confusing. <laughs> probably right. But funny, always funny. Totally, he was gifted. And here we are, speaking of gifted, mm-hmm. and thank you for that cue, we have somebody for the second time. Second time. And we're very delighted to talk to this lady about getting the job done. And by done, we don't mean 90%. We mean done, done. <laughs> Not even 99%. 100%. Nothing less. Yep, yep, yep. Well, let's go ahead. And the book is called The Final Eighth, Bridget Dengel Gaspard, with a foreword by her mentors, Hal and Sidra Stone. This is some powerful stuff for a thin volume. There's a lot packed in there. Bridget Dengel Gaspard, LCSW, graduated from Columbia University, founded the New York Voice Dialogue Institute, and has led workshops for Omega Institute, New York Open Center, and many other organizations. As a former performer and comic, she specializes in overcoming creativity blocks. She lives in New York City, and her book, as Gary said, is The Final Eighth. We got it when it was brand new, hot off the presses in 2020, and we invited her back again to see how the book is doing and to ask all the questions we didn't ask the first time. So welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Bridget, good to have you here today. Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm having fun already, (laughs) just Ah. like last time. Good. We did have a good time. Now, I'm not going to assume that every single person turned in today was the same people who were here last time. So I think it would behoove us to let you start with a couple of basics. And that is, what is the final eighth? Let's talk about that first, and then we'll roll into some new material. So the final eighth is for hardworking, dedicated, talented people who get seven eighths of the way there and find themselves mysteriously stalled in front of the finish line. And, and it's painful that it could be finances, creativity, career, relationships, all kinds of arenas where you get close, but you don't cross the finish line. And you don't know why. A lot of the frustration comes because it's not clear what's going on. And it sprang out in my private practice when I realized whether someone was a banker, a lawyer, or in a creative field, they have their goal, they'd work hard. And I know that they did because I was there for it and I was part of the coaching for it. And there would be this stall just as the opportunity was there. It's like the stall appeared when the yes came and then it came to me whole. This is a final eighth and it is an issue. And it's about, I think, not having permission 
to be a victor. You have permission to work hard somehow and be responsible and put in the hard work, but somewhere in the stuckness is a lack of permission to be a victor because it's transformative when you really go from of something that you love, that you aim for and then cross the finish line, you become a winner. So if you have a negative viewpoint and nothing works out, and suddenly things look like they're gonna work out, that's called cognitive dissonance. And there's a stuckness and there's, and it's painful. And that's why I wrote the book because there's different parts of us that are for the goal, different parts of us that are against the goal and they each have wisdom and they have competing agendas too. And so the more you know about them, then you consciously can decide your agenda when you take care of their concerns directly. It's like you can access the superpower you need for just the goal that you're after. Bridget, does the name Leon Lett mean anything to you? Hmm. Uh, if you're a football no, fan. I have to. Hmm? Okay. If you're a football fan. Oh, if you're a football fan. I remember, yes, and we talked about hockey the last time. And I'm I'm so no, I I don't know him because I'm not an, an athlete, a sports person. Well, Gary First wants thing. to tell this story. So no is a better answer. As Gary, you, run with the ball. As it were. <laughs> Leon Lett, who is a great football player. Let there be no doubt about that. Late in the fourth quarter of Super Bowl 27, Leon Lett of the Dallas Cowboys recovered a fumble on the Dallas 35-yard line and ran it back toward the end zone. When he reached the 10-yard line, Let slowed and held the ball out as he approached the goal line. However, he did not see Bill's wide receiver, the Buffalo Bills, wide receiver Don Beebe chasing him down from behind. Beebe knocked the ball out of Let's outstretched hand just before he crossed the goal line, which sent the ball through the end zone and resulted in a touchback that cost Let his touchdown in the Super Bowl. Let later said he was watching the Jumbotron and trying to do a Michael Irvin, who was a spectacular teammate of his, where he put the ball out across the goal line. The Cowboys had a commanding 52 to 17 lead at the time, and the play is viewed as not having affected the outcome of the game, but it embarrassed Let and is still well known today. In one survey done by ESPN, it was ranked as number nine in the top 10 list of worst plays in the history of the NFL. So here was a guy who literally took his eye off the ball. <laughs> that, that, yes, that's an amazing story. So uh, one way I would look at it, and I look forward to hearing what you guys say. So then a few cells came in, right? So he was, he's had his victory self running to, towards the goal. And then other selves came out, like, let's see how we're doing, looking at the screen as opposed to his goal. So often those are selves that are like, also maybe a little hubris. The hubris self can do a lot of damage and, um, and, and losing focus literally about what he's doing. So he didn't see the person behind him that just stole his move. And so if it was, uh, so we'd want to talk to all of those selves to say, what's going on? Because you it know, is embarrassing. Right. 
and it's great that it wasn't consequential. You'd hate to lose the game that way. But the idea, as I read that story, I've known about it for many years, is that there's some part of us, Bridget, it seems to me, because I've experienced it myself, there is some part of us that can't see ourselves actually scoring crossing that line, going to the end zone and grabbing the glory. I think there is some SOB in our committee of inner selves that decides that we're not worthy. That's not me. It wouldn't be characteristic for you to reach out for glory and to succeed. And we find a way to screw it up. I so agree. It's almost like you can't hold a vision of, of this future whatever it is you want that there are part of you there's part of you that just literally can't hold it and see it and and it it can be tragic i agree and and i'm going to assume but i will i will ask you that when you are aware of this and maybe you know when you're in touch with you know your book the final eighth if you can kind of mitigate that behavior so that it becomes less it lessens in the future is that would that be a fair thing to say bridget absolutely it's it's like know thyself so the whole idea of the book and all of uh the listeners can start it now you a great exercise is doing something called the inner selfie report where you literally just bullet point selves that you feel come up during the day. And say you have an angry self that doesn't say what it feels, that self still is operating in you. So a self doesn't have to express itself with for it not to be there. So the more you know about what selves are around, then you can make better decisions. So for example, and I've seen this over and over, it's like people do great at the interview. So they get the second interview, they do so well, they get a third and final interview. Now that's the high stakes interview. Basically, you kind of have to mess it up to not get the job. And that's often where people choke. And so the more you know about what parts of yourself you need to bring to this high stakes interview, for example, or the Super Bowl, it really is a metaphor that goes all throughout anything. Then you know what parts to bring forward and ideally take the uh, sabotage cells or the, the fearful selves. And I always like to say, let those little inner selves of yours go in your mind, have them have their favorite babysitter eating their favorite food, but they are not with you at these important meetings. And the more flexibility you have with bringing parts of yourself to the forefront that are right, like have the correct superpower for the thing that you need in the moment, the better. I wrote down a cognitive dissonance when you were talking earlier, because um, I have a much more personal story to share. And that is that um, I, I had a bit of an accumulating repair list that needed a handyman. And I have a wonderful handyman that I've had for years. And I, first it was one thing and then it was two things and then it was three things. And then by the time it got to like four or five, I, uh, I called him and, um, and on a Friday he came over and I said, there's this and this and this and this and this. And he said to me, um, if you like, I will come back on Monday 
and I will take care of the kitchen faucet and the rotting wood and the hole in the wall and all that kind of stuff. And, and if you want, I'll paint your ceilings. I had a, a couple of leaks in ceilings that had brown spots on them. And it was, it became to be too much for me. It's like, I can have it all. I, I said, you're going to repair the, the, the leak and the wood and the hole and all that kind of stuff. And he, and he said, call me tomorrow if you want me to paint the ceilings, because that was going to involve a lot of furniture moving and a lot of getting things out of the way to have the ceilings painted. And I said, okay. And in that 24 hour period, I was watching myself, Bridget. I was watching myself saying, well, I can have four fifths of what I want, but can I really have it all? And I, I called the next day and I only got a voicemail, which, which worried me, but I said, I'm going for it. I want the ceilings painted too. And then it was all Saturday and Sunday, moving all the personal items out of the way, getting a lot of furniture out of the way. But I was watching myself with this cognitive dissonance where he said, in three days time, I will get everything done that you want done. And, and it was like, wait, wait, what? It, it was very disconcerting to me to, to be in that position. And then, um, strangely enough, I actually took it one step further on Monday when, when he and his assistant came and, and they got everything done in record time. It was the middle of the afternoon when I looked around and I, all my furniture had been moved out of the way. And I said, um, I don't know what you guys have tomorrow but uh, if you could rearrange your schedule, I'd really like to get the walls painted too. And they said, go buy the paint. We'll, we'll come back tomorrow. And so here I was in this place of, of feeling like I, I wasn't able to get everything I wanted. And then when I watched what I was doing in a 24-hour period. What are you doing here? He's offering to fix everything. Why aren't, you, why aren't you jumping and saying, yes, do it all, do it all? Why would I hold anything back? And so when I, when I got to that point, then I was willing to even go one step further and say, could you paint too? And so Gary and I went out and we bought six gallons of paint and they painted on Tuesday. That was so far more than what I was expecting from a few repairs. And it was one of two unbelievably major things that I wanted to get done in 2021. And it's like, they're all done. And for the last two weeks, I've just been looking around. Everything is clean. Everything is painted. All the repairs are done. And it, there, there is that cognitive dissonance of, uh, I can't believe it all worked out. Swing I, the monitor around, let her take a look. <laughs> I know it's so beautiful. I was thinking, I didn't know it was newly painted, but when I saw it, I was like, wow, you guys have a gorgeous place. Well, wow. that's a cognitive dissonance feeling. Yeah. Things really don't work out for me that well. And then to have everything work out and then a cherry on top of the ice cream sundae, you know, it's, it's almost hard to get used to things being that good. Don't, don't you find that with people that they're able to handle the struggles better than they're able to handle the successes sometimes? 
Absolutely. And that's often why I say don't stop doing the work because once you've hit a good mark or two, because you've got to get your, I always sometimes say you have to grow more receptors for all the good stuff and all the good feelings that are coming in and the happiness. I love how you broke that down because even when you talked about it, you're like that you used a littler voice, like a kind of scared voice, like really everything. And usually it's little tiny childlike selves that are scared. And so I'd love to hear anything you wanted to share, but a lot of us have early messages that it's not safe for some reason to either want a lot because then you'll be disappointed or get a lot. And often there are credos or beliefs and family systems. Again, not that anyone has done anything wrong, but like a fool and his money are soon parted or don't be too big for your britches. Well, those common sayings really do imply you cannot have even the saying what you want your cake and to eat it too. I've never understood that. Yes, is the answer. <laughs> but there is this societal pressure to, to say to like somehow it's almost morally wrong to want more and then even worse, get more. And um, and and being aware, then you can notice it and comfort yourself. And I'm curious how, like what part of you said, you know what, let's do the walls too. What, what would you, does well, that, that part have that, an aid? That part of me was uh, the fact that all this furniture was moved. And I said to myself, they will put it all back, but then they'll have to move it a second time. And so there was that practical me that said, you know, on a very practical basis, how many times do the painters want to move the furniture? I didn't think they were going to move as much as they did. I mean, I thought we'll just throw some tarps over, you know, a lot of the stuff, but no, I mean, they, they filled my outside Florida room to the point where it looked like a furniture store. They just put everything out there and I wasn't expecting that. So I thought we don't want to do this twice, do we? And, and so that was the practical me saying, you know, do you want to do this twice or do you want to do it once? And, uh, and they were on board for just doing it once because, you know, a lot of furniture moving is not fun either. No, and it's an efficient self. Yeah. So the other thing is often selves will say, allow that, like get you your cherry too, because it, it solves a, a, an acceptable problem. Like, it's better to be efficient, which isn't a bad thing, but sometimes we allow ourselves to get closer to the final eighth goal if it's in alignment with a rule that we already follow, which is be efficient, be productive. If this is gonna be you know, in disarray now, let's finish it up so then what we just have to put it back together once. So that is often a place where people are allowed in what was formerly forbidden territory. Because a lot of what you're talking about and what the book talks about is inner permission. The world is saying, yes, come on in. But then we somehow don't say yes to the invitation because inside ourselves is the, the idea things can't work out or success is for other people, but not me. And they're and not, painful. And not necessarily is success meant for someone in one's own family. This is what's, this is an issue for me because it's happened to me and I've seen it happen to others. 
there is this, you mentioned that phrase too big for your britches. Yeah. You know, they, and sometimes within an extended family, there are people that think you're getting too big for your britches because you have some noteworthy success, maybe prosperity to go along with it. And I understand jealousy, envy, those are human emotions. I get it. But by the same token, if you start feeling like you should put the brakes on your own success so as not to alienate your family, who has the problem here? If you're satisfying your family's need to not feel inferior to you in their own neurotic thinking, who's the one that loses out? Yes, and but it, and so many people do this. I call it distorted loyalty. In fact, many people don't cross their final eighth because they have an unconscious distorted loyalty to keeping family members happy. And envy is a huge part of this. So many families, I call it, operate on the currency of envy. And it's, uh, it, what happens is everyone's unhappy. One of the secrets is it's as difficult to be envied for many people as to envy. And I even have an exercise in my book which is what are, ask yourself, what are five good things about envy? You could do it about anything, about strength or about uh, being vulnerable. And because envy often tells you what you want. You envy something because you want it. But a lot of families pay lip service to getting ahead, but then they do those undermining things like, like what I call those twisted compliments, you know, well, for you, that might be admirable, you know, with the tone of voice, you don't have to be outright insulting, but they all really uh, get to your self-esteem and corrode it. And I couldn't agree more that it's, it's, it's a tragedy, but a lot of people don't even know they're doing it. They don't know they're dimming their own light to keep other neurotic family members and friends happy. And I often, when I talk to my clients, I'm going to, I tell them you very likely will lose some friends who would meet you for coffee and kvetching, but not for Java and joy, because they're just not <laughs> going to do their own work. Uh, I like and that. it's hard, but you have to, and, and I have a whole section about practicing safe success, because the truth is you might lose people. And you personally have to make the decision, am I going to let this family member go or shift my relationship in order for me to be more of who I am? And a lot of people think they'll do it. And then if they look at their behaviors, they're not doing it. And that's why I love the final eighth process, because you can figure out what's going on and say, oh, wait a minute, I should be loyal to myself. It doesn't help anybody really in the long run if I don't be the best I can be. There is a hold that our family and our friends have on us that doesn't allow us to get too far, you know, beyond where they are. And, um, and I guess, you know, we don't want to lose them, you know, in some cases. And but at what cost? That's the thing for me. Mm -hmm. Yes, Suzanne really put that well. I mean, we don't want to lose them. So that's a sense of bereavement yes. or of alienation, estrangement. But if the cost of avoiding estrangement is that I don't reach my full potential, don't do the things I came here to do, as metaphysical types like to say, again, who loses? And the people who want to see you held back 
feel better about themselves only in relation to your failure to reach your own potential. It's kind of a dirty way of comforting oneself. And that's the double bind. You're, you are bringing up what so few people understand. And that's why I brought that up in my book too, the double bind. You are literally engaged. A double bind is, is the between the rock and the hard place. Basically it's lose, lose. And what you just described in order to be, to follow my own heart, I've got to hurt my family member. And for many people, especially young kids, they're always going to pick against themselves and to keep peace with the family member that's taking care of them because we're wired to want approval so that we get attachment in whatever form our family's able to give us, then that's fine. But as we get older and become adults, we've got to be aware of this or else we will unconsciously do just what you said, basically cut off our noses to spite our face. And it's only our face that's hurting, but we're doing it for the family. And it's, it doesn't make logical sense at all. And that's why people say, well, just do it, you know, feel the fear, do it anyway. And I always are like, yeah, go ahead. But then if you cannot, then come back to me because something else is going on. If just do it works for you, just do it. But often what's really going on are these distorted loyalties. And you said it, grief is often involved. And then making um you know you and and then grief i and like loss. to think <clears throat> grief and loss and loss because you do have to you have to be willing to let certain people go from your life and you know i don't think i was ever willing to do that very much as a young person and and now as a an older person there are things that i'm willing to let go of and people that i'm willing to let go of if they, if they don't benefit me. And then sometimes there's cutting the difference. Like as we, as, as we get wiser and do our work, we have diplomatic selves. And so the other, it's still a loss, but say a, a, a family member was a close friend in an ally, but it was toxic. It was about maybe gossiping or you bonded on negativity and you just don't want to do that anymore. You can still, have a relationship with that person that you define differently, but the loss will be, you're not going to feel as close. So that's the other thing. Uh, at first you think, well, it's either, or, and sometimes it is, if a family member really won't let you be who you are, then you do have to let them go totally. But other times I almost, I, it's like you make them more of an acquaintance in terms of what you literally share with them, because it's important for us to protect ourselves. We have to protect the parts of us that are helping us get to the final eighth. And, and if we, if we like share our dream back to what you were saying, Gary, and to with a family member that we now know always is going to undermine our confidence, then at a certain point you have to say, well, whose fault is that? What final eighth issue is that, that once again, just before I go to the bank to pitch for the loan, to grow my business, that's when I call my uncle. Who called your uncle on the night before um, you were going to have an important meeting and now um, you are destabilized and have high anxiety and don't perform as well as you could? Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to give you give uh, Bridget the opportunity to let you know how to get her book, get in touch with her and participate in whatever she has going on. 
And then, Bridget, here's the big challenge. I'm going to confront you with a societal norm, not even of our shores, and ask you how you would handle it being a change agent of the first magnitude and doing the final eighth. The book, and this is by way of enlisting your inner selves to accomplish your goals. Bridget Dengel Gaspard, The Final Eighth is her book, and we will get back into the meat of the potato, as the TV figure likes to say. <laughs> and uh, I, I do want to throw out a cultural saying that can be quite daunting if you take it too seriously. That's when we come back. You're listening to Manson Mitchell. You're tuned into Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Every two minutes, a child becomes a victim of sex trafficking in the U.S. It's happening right now. Don't turn off the radio or change the channel. Don't cover your kids' ears, no matter how much you want to ignore it. Child trafficking is real. In fact, it's happening in your town. And you know what our greatest weapon against child trafficking is? It's our children. It's time to act with PACT. That's Partners Against Child Trafficking. PACT works to teach students how to identify the warning signs of child trafficking so they can help other vulnerable kids around them. PACT student ambassadors receive in-depth training on the issue and design a project to raise awareness, reduce victimization, and disrupt demand. Visit PACT.city to start donating today. That's P-A-C-T C-I-T-Y. And for as little as $5 a month, you can help end child exploitation. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Bridget Gaspard, author of The Final Eight, to discuss enlisting our inner selves to accomplish our dreams. On Saturday, Jacob Cooper talks about his insights resulting from a near-death experience years ago and how that has shaped his life today. Bringing you mastery and mystery one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest today, Bridget Dengal Gaspard, who wrote The Final Eighth. Bridget, if people would like to find out about their inner selves and how they can accomplish that last eighth of what they would like to do, 
what is the best way for them to reach you reach the book do you have a website spill it all girlfriend okay i'm spilling yes to it all so final i'm all over social media you can put in final eighth or my name bridget dangle gaspard and it's available everywhere books are sold uh published by new world library and i have a couple of freebies that i invite people to come to really get a taste which is every third thursday of the month at 8 p.m eastern i have a voice dialogue zoom shop so anyone is welcome just contact me and i can register you but it's absolutely free through zoom and we do a basic voice dialogue session so people can actually see it and some type of group exercise with whoever shows up so that you get the experience of it and everyone always learns something you don't have to be the one getting facilitated and if you'd like to be facilitated let me know because we like to put people in who want to do it and also on the 8th of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'm on Instagram to answer any questions about the process or bring up points so that people can, again, really have support as they go through the final eighth process. And this May, I'm having a masterclass. So as a companion to the book, we're going to meet Saturdays from one to three on the first four Saturdays of May and contact me for that so that if you want help and group support to really go dive deep into your own process with this. Um, it's a lot of fun. So please contact me. And if you forgot everything I said, just Google final eighth and send there me an you email. Go. <laughs> Finally. Good. I've always been an admirer, Bridget, of those people who are willing to buck not only trends, but their entire society. There's something to be said for the nonconformists, especially those who are not destructive in their actions. The Japanese have a saying, the nail that sticks up gets pounded down. Mm. And I thought, what a daunting challenge for an individual or an individualist, a nonconformist by nature, perhaps, growing up in Japan, wanting to be who you really are or whom you perceive yourself to be when everyone, it seems, around you is telling you that you must fit in or else. So when you look at that, how would you advise somebody that comes from that background and feels that their life is incomplete? That's such a good question. And I think also they have one far east in like Australia and New Zealand, and they call it the tall poppy. You don't want to be the tall poppy. Same thing, because you'll get your head cut off. Um, so I think a lot of societies give messages that you better fit in. And I love the word you used, nonconformist. So with the final eighth approach, every part of you has wisdom, including your conformist, the, the, your uh, compliant ones, your cultural membership selves. And so you would talk to these different parts of yourself and find out their wisdom and what they feel is the important thing to do. And in terms of uh, you'd honor that there was pressure to, to not be the nail that sticks out. And then you'd rally forces within and without to, if you really feel, no, I wanna follow something and I'll be the nail that sticks out and I'll take the consequences. You've gotta strengthen yourself. And that means allies outside in the outside world, like mentors, as well as inner fortitude. I like to say the process really gives you 
distress tolerance. Sometimes I tell clients the goal isn't to feel good. The goal is to tolerate the distress as you shift to your new baseline. But you honor the fact that that pressure exists and that's validating and often that's very empowering. Okay, I'm not crazy. Yes, all of society is telling me to not do it. All of my internal essence is telling me to do it. Talk about competing agendas. And in that exploration, which is the final eighth process, you can often rally what you need to do and navigate both kind of like what we were talking about, about friends and families not supporting you. You could still have a relationship with them, like be civil during the holiday gatherings, but you um, also have lots of safe places for you to be the nail that sticks out or that tall poppy. And speaking of the holidays, be civil at the holidays. I don't know what kind of Thanksgiving table you sat around. <laughs> there, but there are people, and they've talked to me about this. There are families where it is understood that if you attend at their invitation, Thanksgiving dinner this year held at their place, by God, you had better not badmouth either Donald Trump or Fox News or else there's hell to pay. And so it's here you true. are, I'm the opposite. I've been at the far end of that spectrum. I look at that, wow, you know, that's just not who I am. And I'm also disinclined to keep my mouth shut if I hear people saying outrageous things that I know to be untrue. And so, you know, I've been, uh, it wasn't a Thanksgiving dinner. Well, actually it was. I remember Thanksgiving, I'll shift gears. I've been at a Thanksgiving dinner and Suzanne's shaking her head sensorially. <laughs> but I, I remember spending three and one half hours of a post-Thanksgiving get-together where we were having leftovers. And all of a sudden, the meaning and message of Christianity and Christ came up. I have my own metaphysical views. I do not identify as a Christian, though I did for a long time in my life and was raised Catholic. I look at life differently now. I look at God differently. Well, as soon as that became known, I was subjected to a full court press of my relatives trying to convert me or win me back to Jesus. And I was giving them several very cogent reasons why that would not be happening, nor should it. And then when I finally was exhausted from all of this talk, I went up to go use the little boy's room and Suzanne unfortunately was left behind and they started in on her. And Suzanne wow. is very, she is laconic. She doesn't waste a lot of time. Well, you know, that's the difference between the, the selves that each of us called forth at that event, Gary, because the, the self that you chose to bring to the front was the argumentative self and so you argued with them and when they turned to me to um, restart the argument in in your absence the self that i called forward very calmly just sat back and said i will not be discussing this with you i mean that's a different self and we were talking on the break about how we each have these multiple personalities within us. And I think part of just being aware of the fact that you have them is that you don't always have to call the same one. You can, you can have different aspects of yourself step forward. 
if if I have a neighbor, and I do have a neighbor, who <laughs> will make remarks intended to start uh, something, I can I have a choice at that point. I can I can look at her, and my kindness can step forward, and and I can say, well, you know, that's an idea. Uh, let me think about that. Or I can be very sarcastic and said, you know, not in a million years. Are you kidding me? I mean, there are different aspects of yourself that you can bring forward. And, and I think it's good not to be the same all the time. And isn't that part of what you're looking at with the final eighth, Bridget, is not to be the same all the time. Exactly. And you really did it beautifully because all of these selves are in our body. And even I know it's not on video for listeners, but I could hear the difference between your different selves. Like your kinder one had a lower register, actually even a slower rhythm of speaking as opposed to the sarcastic one. So in our awareness and as our awareness grows and you get to know what parts of your body actually contains different selves and how they speak and what energy they put out you have so many more choices and you aren't the same and and it it's it, it's exciting actually and also you can do it in reverse the more you know about yourself like let's say you're um angry self that's just hard charging and and maybe even kind of rigid or the argumentative self you can see it in other people and so you're right you can make the decision am i going to ratchet up my argumentative self and are we going to get into who's right who's wrong zero-sum game tussle maybe if that's the mood i'm in but i may have more choices if i go oh i see i can see him revving it up he wants to do the argument debate thing I'm just going to take a deep breath and bring maybe my um, contemplative one or my acceptance self and just say, I have good morning. I'm not feeling very verbal at the moment, so I'm going to continue on my way. And you don't take the bait, so to speak. Right. But yeah. Right. And, and it's literally visible to us by what people sound like. And certainly when we're seeing people, what they, how they use their body and their energy, all of ourselves are right there as we start to notice. And I always like to say, that's kind of the fun part is saying, whoa, I see that person's perfectionist is at work or what, whatever it is. If we have um, a number of selves inside of us and each of them has you know, their way of being, their personality, the angry self, the gracious self, the kind, the unkind. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, what's important here, Bridget, is to allow all of them to be. If I, if I choose to be sarcastic and angry with somebody, if I just don't like what's going on, and I'm going to say something about it, I may regret it later. I may regret what I've said. I may feel bad about what I've said. But I also think that we should allow every self to every part of ourself and all these multiple selves to at least exist. Otherwise, we that I think that's when we end up 
criticize oneself is criticizing the other self. Then the, the, the part that is kind in you says, don't be unkind to that person. Don't be sarcastic. And so then all of a sudden, the, the one you're beating up on is you. Whereas I think if you, if you accept that I have all these different ways of being, and I can choose one way, choose another way, don't they just all get acknowledged so that you don't make some of them wrong, some parts of yourself wrong? Yes, that's exactly it. It's like a consequence of the final eighth work is that you get compassion for yourself. You don't aim for it. But in that very process that every part of us has wisdom and they also have rules about how they think you should behave. And that's okay. But none of them holds the whole truth. So for example, taking a neighbor situation, for example, maybe the good girl has been nice and that's how she you, deals with this neighbor who keeps overstepping boundaries. Well, sometimes you actually need to express anger. And so then your conscious choice of like, okay, this, this is my boundary and this is where it's going to stop. The good girl in you might feel nervous. Oh, they, they, you weren't nice. You didn't use a good tone of voice. And you can just validate that that part is nervous. And like you said, it's okay. And so it's, it, the process itself is so validating. It kind of, I think he it's, that's part of its healing capacity and why people's core negative beliefs kind of fade, even just in this process, again, not focusing on getting rid of it, not focusing on, I need to get more self-compassion, but it comes through the validation of just saying, Oh, here we all are having our opinions. And now here, me and center with all of this information, I get to make a wise choice ideally. And when I make an unwise choice, I'm human and I have to just let myself be human and forgive myself. To forgive yourself for your mistakes. For God's sake, so many people get on your back in this life. Why would you want to jump on, on top like a pyramid and you're going to sit on top and the one who's suffering again is you. Yes. You know, I've had to tell myself, look, be for yourself, Gary, because you've got so many other people against you in this or that circumstance. You're going to join them. I've been in circumstances where a hot debate was going on and it was me against the room. And I'm OK with that. I can be me against the room. I've proven that I can stand in that crucible and not burn up. But then why would I turn on myself? And that's the inner critic. And everyone's got one. And some inner critics are really, really toxic. So when that happens, I recommend you, and I have an exercise in the book where you upgrade different selves and you give them a noble task. So for example, the inner critic that beats you up, you can say, that's not a good enough task. And you ask the inner critic or you tell it that you want, say, the inner critic to help you get your final eighth goal. So the inner critic can hold your standards that you hold for yourself, but it cannot beat you up. So the inner critic is tireless. It sees everything. It's constantly looking at the environment and figuring out what's what. So there's a lot of wiliness that you would like to have access to without the toxic attacking. And so the inner critic is an, a one that's really important to 
make sure that that inner critic no longer works for the early caregivers and no longer reinforces the core negative belief. That is no longer the law of the land. The law of the land for me is Bridget. And so I can give the general, like, this is the fight we're going to fight, but you can't fight me. We are allies and you never ask your inner critic to be warm and fuzzy and a magical inner child type of energy, but you can use that inner critic and, and exactly, you don't beat me up. You help me win my argument by, by feeding me information or making me stronger. And that's really empowering to give your inner critic the noble purpose of actually protecting you without using any toxic old fashioned weaponry. It's again, it's a new inner lifestyle. It's like having the walls and the ceiling painted all at once. Getting it all done. I can get it all. Done. <laughs> I can have it all. Yes. And Ruby shoes too. One of the, one of the notes that I, I made uh, when, and, and going back to something where we started kind of completing the circle is talking about how a lot of the beliefs came to us uh, they weren't necessarily of our origination, but uh, some of those beliefs came to us through uh, family members who said, you know, you're whatever you are, you're smart, you're pretty, you're ugly, you're stupid, whatever it is that they said. Um, and I, I wrote, I made a note that said, don't believe your thoughts, because I think when, when people believe, well, if I believe it, if I think it, then it must be true. And I think that's a, a hard place to go to, to say, just because I think it does not mean it's true. It gives us a little bit more latitude for looking at something from a different perspective. But, you know, where, where do you stand with just not believing the things that you think about, especially negative things? Yes. Uh, so again, it's what self is having those thoughts and you can, and you can ask yourself that what part of me is having these thoughts. So then, you know, it's source, whether it's a pessimistic part or a defeated part or a sad part and every self serves the noble purpose of protection. So you can get underneath the words, say of a pessimist and think, what is that pessimism trying to protect me from? And often it's disappointment. That's a big one. So our, many of ourselves are trying to protect us against big emotions that are painful. Ah. And the up, and that's, mm. so then once you understand that you're like, oh, thank you pessimist for trying to protect me from disappointment. I can handle disappointment now, but I appreciate that you're trying to protect me. And then I don't have to buy in the thoughts of, well, you know, it never works out. And remember last Thursday, well, that was dumb and whatever else it's saying. Right. And then the other thing is, which I love about the final eighth process is you can bring in other tools. I don't know if, if you probably have heard of Byron Katie, who's been around for mm -hmm. a while. Yes. Her work is free on the internet. Well, I love one of her main questions was you ask yourself, is it true? I think it's brilliant. So then you would ask yourself, not like, um, you know, you're wrong, but like, is it true? And maybe it is because the other part of the final eighth process is these selves have concerns that are legitimate. 
And if you listen to those concerns, like you're going to get rejected by someone you care about potentially. Okay. That's probably accurate. So I often apply the Byron Katie question to the other questions that you can ask any self. Is it true? And not prove it. I think you're wrong. Not that attitude, but like, and that's freeing. And then you realize, no, it's not true. It's true. I'm worried about something. It's true. I'm having these feelings about something. It's true that I prefer something that I may not get, but is it true? I'm stupid. Is it true that nothing works out? No. And I love it. It's such a, it's like, um, I think of it as sort of a, a detox question. Like it takes the mess out of reboot or yeah. Or a no, reboot. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. In the, the couple of minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you, Bridget, with the responses you're getting, the reviews, working with people, the final eighth, it's the title of your book, the final eighth. Do you think that it's going to have legs? And I ask you that in the context of remembering all the conversations I used to have with people back in the 70s and early 80s about transactional analysis, about which I currently hear nothing. <laughs> and I just was silent for a second. So there was a little bit of nothing. Um, it's true uh, that you never know. But I think it, I, I, from my experience, it it is going to last because it's like a it's its own bucket list, because ever since it came to me whole and I explained to my clients early on, well before the book was finished, it helped them label something so they felt more empowered, and then almost immediately my clients would say, "Oh, I did it! I had a final eighth time. I never called back that person who was waiting on my call. I let my hot lead get cold." And they were able to then isolate what was going on and it was so empowering. So I think because it's empowering as a label, so, ah, it's a final eighth issue. Great. I can do something about that. It's freeing and it's empowering and it involves transformation. And I, and I think, I think it does potentially have legs for that reason. And of course, eight is the infinity. So the final eighth, can shift as we move into different developmental stages and have different goals and have successes. So we have to think about what the next thing is because we've done so well. There's no more to do in that department. A lot of this has to do with success issues. And I like to highlight that. It's not because you failed necessarily that you're here at the final eight. I love that. And the book, once again, the final eight, remember that numeral, the final eight, Bridget, <laughs> Dengel Gaspar, G-A-S-P-A-R-D. Enlist your inner selves to accomplish your goals. May the paradigm burn light and long and be a great success to you. I know you're helping a lot of people with your work, Bridget. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so much fun and inspiring. Well, thank you. Stay tuned. We've got Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and then American Road Trip Talk with Gary Mance, host. And anybody that wants to ride shotgun, fine by me. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of Mance and Mitchell. Until then, have yourselves a safe and happy weekend, everyone.